the main paradox is that you have Lviv being made Ukrainian as really never before in history under a Soviet regime that officially does not like the nation, officially looks forward, if in the long run, of course, to the overcoming of the nation as such, to the overcoming of national identity. And that also, perhaps this is even more important, in the very short run, fights absolutely ruthless war in particular against Ukrainian nationalism, which it almost defines as a form of evil as such. And nevertheless, under these circumstances, somehow a very Ukrainian city emerged. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Before we get to the show, I wanted to make an appeal to everyone that if you like what you hear on this podcast, please consider making a donation to support the show and its mission to bring critical voices about Eurasian history, culture, politics, and society. If you'd like to make a contribution, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on the Support the SRB Podcast button. Many of you have already generously contributed, and I want to say a big thank you for all your support. I'm pleased to welcome Tariq Cyril Amar to the podcast to talk about the radical transformation of Lviv, Sovietization, violence, the Holocaust, and its legacies in this Ukrainian border town. Tariq Cyril Amar is an assistant professor of history at Columbia University, specializing in the Soviet Union, Russia, and Ukraine. He is the author of The Paradox of Ukrainian Lviv, a borderland city between Nazis, Stalinists, and nationalists. Here's Tariq Cyril Amar. So your book, The Paradox of Ukrainian Lviv, focuses on the enormous changes in Lviv in the second half of the 20th century. Why did you focus on Lviv, and, and what is this paradox it, that you reference in your book's title? I came to focus on Lviv really for two reasons. The interest in Lviv emerged gradually, and it came from a general interest in Soviet history initially, but I wanted to work on Soviet history that was in some sense, without any prejudice, on the margins, peripheral, in borderlands. And I went to different places. One of them was Chernivtsi at one point, the former Chernovitz. And Lviv, for many reasons, happened to be where I settled as were. Now, there is, of course, there are bigger conceptual reasons here, which I, I learned in the process, which is that I began to see Lviv as this place where a number of extremely important forces and phenomena of the last century's history in Europe in particular, maybe also with global significance indeed, had intersected in a particularly intense, unfortunately often violent way. And that was, of course, partly fascism or Nazism, more specifically. It was also the Soviet variant of authoritarian socialism, much of it Stalinist. There was, of course, the history of nationalism that also was important in this context. So what was the paradox that this city reflects? The paradox I came to see actually has several layers, at, at the, or it's, it's concentric. And at the core of it, the main paradox, if you want, in my view, is that you have Lviv being made Ukrainian as really never before in history under a Soviet regime that officially 
does not like the nation officially looks forward, if in the long run, of course, to the overcoming of the nation as such, to the overcoming of national identity. And that also, perhaps this is even more important, in the very short run, fights absolutely ruthless war in particular against Ukrainian nationalism, which it almost defines as a form of evil as such. And nevertheless, under these circumstances, somehow a very Ukrainian city emerged. And it's important here to understand that Ukrainian Lviv does not emerge only after the Soviet collapse. Not at all. Lviv is a very Soviet, is a very Ukrainian city by the end of the Soviet Union. This paradox that you're, you're speaking to is something that historians who have been looking at Soviet nationality policy in the last 20 years or so have noted that in many respects, the Soviet Union created nations as much as it tried to suppress them. And that's an interesting irony. And some people even connect that to the collapse, the creation of these nations to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I think for, for Western Ukraine, it's even more of a paradox because the strongest Ukrainian nationalist feeling comes from that region. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right, of course. My idea uh, is very much in the context of, of recent scholarship. And I also think you're right about the fact that there is something special about the West Ukrainian or Western Ukrainian case because, first of all, it's it's extreme, if you want. Western Ukraine, this is not the only thing it's associated with, but is also associated with strong, very strong national identity, also with nationalism and with a very strong anti-Soviet resistance to this. So to see this actually happen in this particular place was particularly striking, I would say. Yeah, and I want to get into some of those in more detail throughout the interview. But first, I want to ask you about one of the main themes of your book, and that is Sovietization. And in the, your introduction, you make this interesting observation that most people, in, in thinking about Sovietization, place it after World War II. But a lot of the scholarship that's come out in the last 20 years, again, dealing with nationality policy, particularly books about Central Asia, have noted that, well, Sovietization is a process that occurs really at the beginning of the Soviet system. Talk about Sovietization as first a theory and a practice, and, and how does it define or shed light on a borderland city like Lviv? Yes, I, I think if you think about how Sovietization emerges and the history of Sovietization over time, you, you can see at least three different ideas that, that we have been operating with. One is the extremely narrow idea, but also very powerful idea still, that Sovietization is really something that happens in Eastern and Central Eastern Europe after 1944, 1945. And that then, you know, perhaps ends with the death of Stalin, perhaps has a peak and so on and so on. But it's basically a post-war story. A broader interpretation is that Sovietization begins really in 1939, at least in parts of territories that will then be re-Sovietized again, as it were, after the war. And then, of course, as you also have made reference to, there is a longer horizon, again, that I think is extremely important, namely to understand that from the Soviet point of view, and they are, after all, the ones who create Sovietization. From the Soviet point of view, Sovietization has always been there. It comes actually in with the revolution and the civil war. We find very, very early references to Sovietization. And moreover, what makes Sovietization so very interesting, in my view, is that if you overfocus on the conquest of Eastern Europe, which is very important, but if you exclusively focus on that, you miss something extremely important about Sovietization, namely that it's a socialist authoritarian 
practice and set of ideas that actually cuts across the domestic and the abroad. You can also Sovietize, for instance, during or after the Civil War, Siberia, right? So Sovietization is a much broader concept, and it speaks directly, I think, to the fact that the whole Soviet conception of what is a state, what do borders mean, what does expansion mean, is something very peculiar, and Sovietization belongs into that specific context. Do you Would you make it comparison to, or perhaps to try to understand it, compare it to other ideologies of civilizing mission or universalist ideologies or uh, a form of modernity? Yes, I have done that, of course. And there the, 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 the challenge for me, and who knows whether, you know, I found a good resolution to it or not, but, but the challenge that I have seen or identified was that it, it is akin, it is akin to universalizing missions of modernity. There is an aspect of it that one can quite clearly see if one only starts really reading what the Sovietizers write about themselves and how they see themselves. There is an aspect of a socialist authoritarian civilizing mission in Sovietization. And that is quite explicable because we have to see that certainly under Stalinism, I would even cast that more broadly, but certainly under Stalinism, Soviet civilization does see itself as the most advanced civilization on planet Earth. That's what it is. It's post-capitalist. It has a teleology that tells it that post-capitalism is the most advanced form of, you know, is historically organizing a society. And from that standpoint, of course, if you go abroad, for instance, and bring what they think of, what they think of as liberation and social transformation and Sovietization to those others, you are essentially lifting them up. And in that respect, it is very much like a civilizing mission. It's also, but what is different, of course, is and need, should not be overlooked, there are two very important differences. One is, there's really no thinking about the Soviet without class. They take class seriously to the bitter end. And that, of course, is different in if you think French, British, and so on, overseas empires, for, of course, or if you think in terms of Cold War American hegemonic modernization projects. There are certainly you encounter difference. The second big difference is that, and it's a corollary to this, as people like Amir Weiner have shown, yes, ethnicity plays a big role and we can find ethnicization drives, especially under Stalinism. But the Soviet Union never goes racist. Right? It has other forms of violence, which are very violent, but racism isn't its thing. And therefore, actually, the way that Sovietization as a civilizing mission works is that at least hypothetically, it always has to live with the tension that those who are defined as backward, maybe feudal backward, or maybe capitalist backward, because that's also been overcome from their perspective, those defined as backward can never be seen as ultimately unable to catch up. Sovietization always comes with the idea, at least it's an idea that will reassert itself, for instance, in 53 over Western Ukraine, it comes with the idea that the other may be backward, but at the same time, you cannot define the other as fundamentally and irreparably different. Well, this is actually a really important thing because you don't have then the concept that something someone like, you know, Homi Baba pointed out years ago in his, one of his seminal essays, almost but not quite. Yes. Right. You don't have this gap in the development of the other into a full, you know, modernized human being. At least you, you can't conceptualize it. 
right? Yeah. It's, it's, uh-huh. It may be there in your practices, but if it's there in your practices, it will create tension and problems. And you sometimes can see that being read off in their discourses and in their reports and in their discussions. It also means a different experience, in part at least, to those who are the objects of that particular civilizing and here Sovietization mission. Because they, of course, also perceive what they encounter and Sooner or later, they begin to learn that there are certain ways you can talk to this power and certain ways you cannot talk to it. And that's a very important part of, of these parameters, if you want, of interaction. All right. Well, let's get into Lviv as a border city and, and, and briefly talk about the city itself before 1939, in particular, the ethnic composition and the, the multi-ethnicity of the city. Before 1939 and, and into the Second World War, it's a city that is made up, if you think in terms of the largest groups there, the smaller ones also, but if you think in terms of the largest groups, it's Poles, Jews, and Ukrainians. And of course, as always, when you deal with ethnic or national categories, you want to underline that you do not essentialize those. So we understand that these are identities that can be changed, these are identities that can be very fuzzy at the edges, they're an interaction, and so on and so on. But nevertheless... We are dealing with a place in this first half of the 20th century, and national identity is a very strong force. And the majority, the clear majority, the vast majority, I would say, of Lviv's inhabitants by that time have learned to see themselves as either Poles, Ukrainians, or Jews. When you think in terms of numbers, right, which is not unimportant, obviously, we have the usual uncertainties around how... Um, how censuses are done, and so on and so on. But still, we have a fairly good picture, which is that a little more than 50% are Polish. Often that comes with being Roman Catholics in terms of religion. About a third of the population of pre-war Lviv are Jewish, and about a sixth of this population are actually Ukrainian. And that often comes with, in religious terms, being Greek Catholic. That is the situation before the Second World War, and that is, of course, the situation that will be massively, very disruptively changed, but really after 41. The first Soviet occupation that occurs between 39 and 41, the summer of 41, is actually, in spite of all its violence, which is great, is not going to fundamentally upset this particular balance of ethnic groups in the city. So let's talk a bit more about the the Soviet occupation of the city, because the Soviets do move in in 1939 as a result of the Nazi-Soviet pact, and they do begin to Sovietize it in this early process. And as you pointed out, violence is a key method in which this is done. Talk about that process of Sovietization and the role violence played in it. Violence, of course, takes several forms, as as often uh, under authoritarian regimes, and here specifically under Stalinism. What you're seeing is the violence that is targeting uh, the civil society, or what we would call civil society, the shutting down of a rich array of institutions in which, partly in these groups, but partly also cutting across them or by different identities, Lviv's inhabitants could actually articulate themselves before the Soviet occupation. And then there is, of course, the 
direct political repression of parties, also of political institutions, of the former elite of the city, which is usually Polish, and so on and so on. And then there's mass repression. And the mass repression takes various shapes again, as we know, for instance, already from the work of Jan Gross many years ago, incarceration, uh, throwing people into prison and keeping them there is something that is intensely practiced on a large scale throughout the occupation. But of course, there's also deportations. Four major deportations of different sizes, different groups of victims, as it were. But all of this together creates an extreme atmosphere of fear and uncertainty and also begins already to once again mobilize or to escalate the latent and tensions between the ethnic groups that live in the city. So the, the atmosphere is, the, I don't want to say it's the well, one of the sparks that will contribute to the ethnic violence that we see during, to, during the war. Well, you know, when I, when I did research on this book, what I found quite often is that when Livivians, and in this period, and of course there are also many refugees already among them who have just come in from parts of Poland that at that time are under German rule. But when Livivians experience violence, be it that part or all of their apartment is taken away from them, be it that they fear deportation or that they are deported, or that some relative, a friend or fiancé is deported, be it that they fear denunciation, be it that they fear spying or being spied upon in everyday life, again and again you find that these fears are then articulated in ethnic terms. And it's not only the Soviet invaders who are being blamed, it is actually also other co-Livivians, but who are ethnically different. So, of course, as you probably know and as well known, there is a prejudice amongst non-Jews about the Jews helping somehow the Soviets. A very widespread and, in the end, extremely lethal prejudice that, that you know, Nazi rule will, will also use and work with. There also is a sense, you, you can find, for instance, cases where it cuts in, in other directions. For instance, when a Pole discovers or feels he discovers that the committee that comes to get his apartment is actually infiltrated by Ukrainians. Or when Poles who get deported think that Ukrainians have had a hand in either the deportation, the initiative for that, in reality clearly comes from Moscow, or in selecting the victims. So this is the way in which these Soviet violent measures that are so widespread and that have mass effects actually also uh, feed directly into the pre-existing ethnic or national tension in the city. So in 41, the Nazis then push out the Soviets and occupy the city. And in your chapter on the Nazi occupation, you treat Nazi collaboration and particularly Ukrainian collaboration at, at length. Why did and what was the nature of Ukrainian collaboration. Why did Ukrainians collaborate and what type of collaboration did they perform? I should perhaps say immediately that my idea, my concept of collaboration is not narrow. I think a narrow concept of collaboration is not realistic. It's ahistoric. What I mean by a narrow concept is an idea of collaboration that essentially tries to reduce the phenomenon to what is better called collaborationist. Right? So I don't only think or mean about or mean people who really share Nazi ideology, right? And therefore want to work with the Nazis. I treat collaboration 
in a much more flexible and I think much more realistic manner in which, which is closer to what actually occurred. I treat it much more like Istvan Deak has treated it in his recent book, Europe on Trial. It's a spectrum. And if you think in terms of, of what contemporaries who were not collaborating thought about collaboration, you will also often encounter that they think in terms of a spectrum. And I'm saying all this because uh, I, I think it is very likely that uh, some readers will find, will be uncomfortable with my use of this concept and consider it too wide, but I actually think it's, it's appropriate. Now, what is occurring here is one thing that is not occurring is high-level political uh, collaboration. So this is not Vichy France, right? This is not Denmark. It's not that the Nazis do what Ukrainian nationalists want in 41, namely give them a dependent state, right? And then work with that government. It's not Slovakia. It's not Croatia. This is not not what's happening here. However, that doesn't close the issue of collaboration at all. Like in other countries, and here we come back to the question of the spectrum, there are many other ways in which the Germans seek to work with those who are willing to work with them and in which there are people who are willing to work for various motives with the Germans. One, of course, is, and I describe it in the book, uh, the institution of the Hauptausschuss, which is often confusingly called in English the Ukrainian Central Committee, which is a term I try to avoid. Its Ukrainian name was Ukrainsky Centralny Komitet, but the Germans called it Hauptausschuss, and I think that's here much more appropriate. And then, of course, there were many ways in which you could cooperate, at least, with German initiatives on an ad hoc basis. You could participate, and it happened, of course, in the plunder of the Jews. There are about 80,000 Jewish households in Lviv. And, and, you know, when you, when you read descriptions of, of what occurs under the Holocaust, I don't want to caricature anybody, but I think it's very important to understand the magnitude to actually destroy these 80,000 households and to take their property and to put it somewhere and so on. That was a long and big process. And while the Germans, of course, tried to keep much of this for themselves, they also offered opportunities for others to participate. Moreover, there were opportunities that the Germans didn't even offer. You can think in terms of how members of the Hauptausschuss try to use German power very clearly against Poles, very much against Poles, partly also against Jews. Again, in questions of property, in questions of who's going to have certain administrative positions, very important in Lviv, who's going to have local influence. All of these things obviously exist and are very important for reality as it actually unfolds under German occupation. The people who do this, in part, are very clear about what they're doing. The head of the Hauptausschuss branch in Lviv, a man called Kostpankivsky, very clearly says to a meeting, an internal meeting, our task is legal cooperation with the Germans. They think that is what's required in that moment. I'm sure their motives are complex, but that doesn't make it anything else. It's still collaboration. Collaboration is complex all over Europe. After the once the Soviets come come in in uh, in forty four and retake the city, how has the composition of Lviv changed? When the Soviets come back, the the major change to the ethnic composition of Lviv has occurred through the, the Holocaust. The, the third of the population, maybe including some refugees, even a little more at this point, that was Jewish 
before the Germans come in in 41 has been wiped out. Virtually all of them have been murdered. This area that used to be Eastern Galicia, that part of Western Ukraine, uh, Lviv in it, is one of the places with the lowest survival rates in the Holocaust uh, on the whole. I, I think it's partly because it's under German control uh, for a long time and directly, right? It also, when you look at the way that this mass murder unfolds, there is a horrible combination of techniques. This is an area in which you have both. You have the deportation to death camps, especially Belzats, that, that's the main destination in this case, and you have what has recently been called the, the Holocaust by bullets, the mass executions, often close to where victims live. Also, German occupation, that happens very quickly. Right, So this is a place where we know that tens of thousands seem to have managed to flee still towards the east, but often overlooked. We don't know how many of them were later caught by the Germans anyhow. The Germans might well have overtaken them. And so many others, the vast majority, doesn't even manage to flee. It's just too fast. So there are all these factors that come together. And of course, there is a final factor which must be mentioned, which is that parts of the local population are hostile to Jews and remain hostile to Jews throughout the Holocaust, even though it's pretty clear what is happening to them. Right? It's not a secret. Uh, in Lviv itself, it's, it's in many ways an urban spectacle. And finally, it's not just parts of the population in general, there is a politics involved here. And that is, of course, that Ukrainian nationalists at that time are anti-Semitic. They are, despite what is now being claimed by some apologetic activists in Ukraine, they are not interested in saving Jews. This is not their mission. They are actually much more interested in seeing them die, and they also participate to some extent, in finding them and in killing them. This is very difficult for some Ukrainians because we have a constellation where Ukrainians, as we well know, were massively victimized themselves. And it is hard to acknowledge at that point that at the same time, unfortunately, some Ukrainians also were victimized. And what about the Polish population? The Polish population, of course, needs to be mentioned in this context too. You're quite right. I mean, we know from, for instance, some home army reporting that there too, the, the attitude towards Jews and towards what the Germans do to Jews is at best ambiguous. There you will sometimes find reports where the line, and this is not unusual, we have seen this in other locations too, where the line taken is essentially, we really don't agree with how the Germans do this, but the fact that the Jews are gone is something we welcome. So you will find that. You will also find overlaps, and of course these people interact with each other, they see each other. You find overlaps in specific rationalizations. So one rationalization that you will find with some Ukrainians is that the Jewish element in our cities has been blocking our own modernization and urbanization. And if it's removed from our cities, that's good for us because we will build, and sometimes this is really put very directly, we will build our own nationally conscious middle class. And that argument you will also find uh, among some Poles, indeed. In the Soviet retake of, of Lviv in 1944, in the following years, there is a general expulsion and purge of Poles from the region and from the city and from administrative positions. Talk about the expulsion of the Poles from Lviv and how it transformed the city under the early years of Soviet rule. Yeah, I think it's it's a truly historic turning point. It's really quite a rupture. You will, of course, find exceptions, as always, but those exceptions are exceptions. 
On the whole, this is the massive effect not to be overlooked. The Polish history of what used to be Lwów comes to an end. Uh, Poles are in essence driven away. The agreement between the Soviets and the post-war communist Poles that is behind this operation, and it's a larger set of agreements, speaks of voluntariness. But that is as voluntary as joining the kolkhoz, right? It's it's not voluntary. There are so many ways in which people are driven out, and that's why it's so complete, too. There are two important things. Um, one is it doesn't happen very quickly. It actually takes a year or so. So the process of removing almost two-thirds of the population now, right? The, this city has just been through the fairly rapid destruction, mass murder of a third of its population. And now it witnesses that there comes another regime that does not commit mass murder, but that removes almost two-thirds of this post-German occupation population. Right? That process takes a while. And I think it's very important that those who stay get to witness that. The other thing that's important, of course, is that the process of, really it sounds terribly brutal, but that's what's happening, of refilling the city is rapid as well. And we know this from various statistics. While Lviv is being emptied again of so many people, it is also very quickly being resettled by many others. And they basically, of course, come from the east. So that what you have in this, in this transition period, Lviv becomes a city in which actually the majority of the population are somehow new. It's not a city in which most people have been there before and then newcomers come in and join them. Actually, most people after the war are new in Lviv in one way or the other. Some people are going to be, a lot of people initially are going to be from farther east. Also a lot of people, earlier than some historians think, are already going to be from the close-by countryside. But what they have in common is that they're actually in a city that is new to all of them. Yeah, this is something you actually point out in the layers of identity that are functioning in this city over the period that you cover, is you have a, an ethnic identity, and then there that gets mixed up during the war, and it creates a lot of violence. But in the transformation of the city, when the Soviets retake it, you get the creation of a local identity versus the newcomer from the East. How, how did that play out? That's, that, I think, was a very important phenomenon. And I myself was, I, yeah, quite surprised, really, uh, when I began to understand it from the archive, that categorizing inhabitants of Lviv, but also of this wider region of, of the Western Oblasts or Western Ukraine, the Soviets used different terms, that categorizing these inhabitants either as locals or as Easterners, was pervasive and very important for several post-war years, I would say into the early 50s. It then abates, it then abates, but into that, for these years, this is, I think, the most pervasive and, in practice, probably the most important identity category in play here. It overlaps with others. It overlaps with ethnic identity. It overlaps with class. It overlaps with if you're in the party or not. It overlaps with if you're a veteran. It overlaps with if you are a former officer or a former private. You know, all of these things. If you're a consumer, if you're a peasant, all of these things are obviously there and very important. And I wished I could have done even more work on, on getting even more into how all of these things play together. But, but, what is striking and very specific in these years is that all of this is pervaded constantly when you read the archive of the party state, which fortunately we can now, by this local easterner distinction. 
And that's a distinction they use, and that's extremely important for them, often trumping other distinctions. Jewish life, as you've noted, was wiped out by the Holocaust in Lviv. And Lviv, for, for many, many years, was a center of Jewish life before the Holocaust. How were Lviv's Jews remembered? How was this absence of the population remember and the violent ways in which it was destroyed remembered in the city? And also, how did what ever was left of Jewish life persist? Yes, that's that, that's a question that I found very important and also quite difficult to, to address. I should perhaps say that I speak most about that, not in the book, but in an article that I published a little earlier. Taking the book and, and what, what I tried to say in the article together, to me it seemed like, once again, not that I'm in love with the idea, but it simply plays out this way, it seemed a bit like a paradox, namely something that I called a disturbed silence. The, the fate of the Jews in the war, and also much of their history before that, is in many ways silenced. It's, it's handed over to oblivion. But at the same time, the manner in which is, this is done is, is subject to recurring disturbances, where you really begin to wonder when people write, for instance, in a Soviet post-war article about, we still cannot quite understand why the Nazi invaders blocked off the whole northern part of the city with barbed wire. I, I, I do think that a lot of people knew very well why they did that and who was behind that barbed wire. But at the same time, the message was that we cannot say that, at least not publicly. This is not for public discourse. And this, of course, has to do with things that have long been pointed out by historians such as Omar Bartov, for instance, that the Soviets develop a very specific attitude to the memory of the Holocaust as a whole, in which they almost never deny its occurrence. That's really marginal. You may find one or two authors who, who seem to get close to that. But they, they, are clear, they clearly don't deny it. But what they do is they de-ethnicize it. Um, and they deprive the Jewish victims of their Jewish identity. This is a well-known fact. They have a very strong tendency to do this. They become generic, peaceful population or civilians. And also, of course, what this means is that they deprive this particular Nazi policy and crime of its particular motivations which are specific even within the general tendency that Nazism has so strongly developed to brutalize people and kill them. In Lviv, when you think in terms of what happens beyond this silence, of course there is a, a Jewish population after the war, but it mostly comes to consist of Jews who are also newcomers. Those who did manage to who were those who were originally in the pre-war times from Lviv, but for one reason or the other were not murdered in the Holocaust, but managed to flee, or ironically sometimes were in quotation marks saved by the fact that the Soviets had deported them east. Those return, but they usually return to very quickly leave for places further west. So the Jews that settle in Lviv after the war are usually also newcomers. They're very often Easterners, to speak in the party states' categories. Most of traditional Jewish life is therefore not resurrected in any way or manner. One institution is an exception, and I, that's why I dedicate a whole chapter in my book to it, and that's the one synagogue that is allowed to reopen, and that will be forced to close in the early 1960s. These links are tenuous, and they are small, but I think they're extremely important precisely because they perhaps not go against the grain, but, but they, they don't fit the overall pattern of first mass murder and then silencing and forgetting. 
the Poles are removed in in the immediate post-war years, which they were the majority of the city, as you started out with in 1939. The one-third of the city was Jewish. They're wiped out in the Holocaust. You have newcomers from the East in coming after the war. But as you pointed out in the very beginning, the paradox of this story is that the Ukrainians, which were the minority, I think you said they were one-sixth the population in 1939, become the majority. How does this happen? How does Lviv become U- Ukrainianized? It happens, I think one fundamental precondition for this to happen is that the Soviet party state decides it should happen. The Soviet party state very clearly always treats Ukraine as what it calls officially ancient Ukrainian Lviv. It never wavers on that, never. Even at the peak of influx also of Russians and of Russianness or Russian cultural dominance, even at the peak, which is perhaps in the early 50s, the policy is actually always to treat this as a city that has to be Ukrainian. And that is quite a genuine policy. One has to see here, of course, that that is a different idea of being Ukrainian than the idea that the Ukrainian nationalists propound. It's very different, and the Soviets and the nationalists too, of course, insist on the difference. It certainly does not include independence as toward the Soviet Union. It certainly does include a sort of younger brother, junior role to the Russians. This is all there. But nevertheless, it is very clearly articulated as a kind of being Ukrainian, not Russian or not simply generically Soviet. They're supposed, Lviv is supposed to be Ukrainian and Soviet. That's what the Soviet party state wants. How does this play out over time? In, in different ways. One thing that happens, of course, that from fairly early on, when the Soviets make another fundamental decision, namely to quickly and massively industrialize Lviv after the war. They very much want to industrialize it with a local working class or proletariat that they want to be drawn from the local countryside. They encounter difficulties doing that. There's an interaction with collectivization that goes through its own chronological cycle at this time. But in the end, this is very much what happens. Um, In older historiography, you will sometimes find the assertion that this only happens, say, from the mid-50s or even from the early 60s. That is wrong. When we read the archives and when we actually look at the data we have, it's very clear that despite the difficulties, locals come into Lviv from the countryside from very early on, from the late 40s on, in not insignificant numbers. So from the beginning, post-war Lviv becomes this site of intense interaction between the Easterners and the locals, But it always occurs under the sign of this being a Ukrainian city that is never revoked. That at the same time, you have tensions between will students have to write their exams only in Russian or perhaps only in Ukrainian? That also is tried at some point. Or how do we actually do the signage in the local history museum? That is all there. But Lviv is actually, even in the early 50s, even while Stalin is still alive, Lviv is a place where you can get into trouble 
for not being respectful enough of great Russian culture. And it's also a place where you can get into trouble for doubting that this is a Ukrainian city and not being respectful enough of what the Soviets see as Ukrainian identity. Now, finally, what are the legacies of all of this? I mean, you've charted this major transformation of this borderland city over this 70, 80 year period. How does this play out today? Because as we noted in the beginning, the very strange irony that this is also one of the main areas of Ukrainian nationalist participation during the war and the present day Ukrainian nationalist sentiment coming from Western Ukraine. So how does this story, your story, influence how these things are articulated in, in, in Western Ukraine today? Well, uh, I mean... I, I I wouldn't really know in the end, right? Because we, we, we would see, right? But right. maybe maybe that's not going to be much impact at all. But um, but but you know how, how maybe the larger question of what's the connection between this past as I see it and interpret it and and the present? It's it really I I I have to say I'm 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 happy I, I deal with the past because I find the present much more challenging again. <laughs> but but the it's so difficult to tell because Lviv is a very let's call it contradictory place, right? You when you when you see the way in which Lviv has received attention, especially since the beginning of the Russia EU Ukraine crisis, it is often presented as a as a wonderful laboratory of uh, an ideal civil society from which all of Ukraine ca can only learn. That, that's a tad idealistic, but as, as every good myth, there is a bit of, of a core of truth to that. Lviv actually has that aspect. But at the same time, as you also know, um, especially on the Russian side, Lviv would get a very different image, namely a hotbed of brutal nationalism. The brutality aside, nationalism, yes, that's also a very strong force in Lviv. So Lviv is, I think, one of the most important things, for me at least, to understand about Lviv is, and I have lived there for five years, is um, that it's really as complex as many other places, and, and probably even more. And it doesn't help either Lviv, I think, nor Ukraine as a whole, when it's turned into a label either way. Because if you idealize it, you in fact overlook the challenges and you overlook where, where help may be needed or engagement or debate or discussion. That's, that's not really a good form of friendship, I think. If you demonize it, that's of course wrong. I mean, I, I don't even have to mention that, I hope. How will that play out in the future? I have no idea. One thing I would like to add is that one particular factor I find personally worrying, and that's because I'm a historian also, is that Lviv, unfortunately, has become one of the, the main locations of a, a very apologetic take on the grimmer parts of the history of the 20th century when Ukrainians appear in any other role than as victims. In other words, Lviv has unfortunately become a location of what I would see the apologetics of World War Two nationalism. And, and there I think one, I would wish that, that everybody in the West would realize that simply because, for instance, the Russian media are demonizing Ukraine and are providing a horrible caricature of the country, that doesn't mean that World War Two nationalists are anything to be admired or turned into heroes. 
And the beef, unfortunately, is a city which for a very long time, like many other places in western Ukraine, already has had a big Bandera statue, a big Bandera monument, the nationalist leader. I see that as a dead end. I don't see how civil society and democracy work with making heroes out of authoritarians, anti-Semites, and ethnic cleansers. I see the case for complexity, absolutely, but making heroes out of such people isn't complexity. That's actually oversimplification. That was Tariq Cyril Amar, an assistant professor of history at Columbia University and the author of The Paradox of Ukrainian Lviv, a borderland city between Nazis, Stalinists, and nationalists. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. You can always find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. to ruin my show, and I get two evil guests who are trying to ruin my show. Fair. Just who came up with the stupid idea of giving Space Ghost a talk show in the first place? How they gave his own show to Tad Ghostal. Any given second he could go mad postal. Stay waving that power band space cannon. And had the nerve to jump in the face of race banning. Pumped out. Luckily he deaded Guess who's the smuck who's credited with editing it? Your man Motar, the cop-out, ain't have no other career choice, he dropped out. Since when the way outs included Zorak, way back he used to rub his thorax and borax. I'm not the one that sold him to it, if he won't admit it, I'm not gonna hold him to it. It's all love and no hate though, for all that, the villain need to get his own late show. Do a monologue and jest with the guests, mad libs switch the beat and walk him to the desk. With danger holding down the control room, late again returning from commercial, I told you doom. Early, he's on BPT. Catch him on public access, free TV. And we're back live on the air with Brack. So, Brack, how your man got a show that's so whack? Have you ever thought to work with Earl Egnatnum? Do you got enough oxygen from this toxic phlegm? Another sec, his neck would have got flames. Mouse switched the screen to some hot dames. Tonight's audience received mid screen video games and 15 seconds of fame. Pitiful lames. It's just a shame. Zoning, competing for the same prime time slot as Conan. Dummy Echigawa announced me free lunch to any stun who lets me power in the shower for hours.